and welcome to another episode of the Rethinking H2O podcast, where every week we explore different stories around water that include safe water projects, trends in the water space, and blue mind. We hope you enjoy listening, and now here's your host, Kevin Sofen. Responsible World, welcome back. Today, really exciting podcast with the CEO of Water for Good, Richard Klopp. Richard himself grew up in Africa in northern Mali and saw firsthand the struggles with water security, food security, and saw some of the pros and the cons of outside people helping. We're going to learn about what Water for Good does as an organization that focuses on water maintenance and sustainability of their well program around the country. We're going to learn about the market-based approach for developing sustainable water systems throughout the country, and ultimately how they're really taking a grassroots initiative to do baseline census data to help expand rural water coverage around the country of Central African Republic. We hope you enjoy listening and take care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rethinking H2O podcast. Excited today to sit down with the CEO of Water for Good, Richard Klopp. Richard, welcome to the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course. For those that don't really know much about you and Water for Good, can you give us some context about yourself and then give us some insight on what is Water for Good? Yeah, sure. So uh, this could get long, so I'll try to give you the short version. I was born in Indiana, but my parents did mission work in Mali, West Africa. So I actually grew up in Africa. And my parents were involved with a variety of things. And one of them was food security and water as well. Yeah, it's an interesting context for a boy from Indiana to grow up in, yeah. in northern Mali, the Sahara Desert, where obviously water scarcity was a huge issue. So I knew the issue viscerally from growing up, but what I usually tell people, I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of stories in there and a lot of information, but as I've reflected later on in life, what I learned from that experience as it relates to my work, especially now at Water for Good, is I was amazed, you know, that people from very, very far away, <laughs> like my parents, uh, my first job was with a Belgian NGO when I was 13. So like where other people were flinging newspapers, I was doing sanitation and hygiene training stuff. I like drew the pictures that the NGO workers would use out in the villages is back in the seventies. Wow. And yeah, so again, strange way to grow up, but influential. And you, you know, you think I would have put this together earlier in life, but it really didn't come to me till in my forties that it was kind of a unique way <laughs> to grow up. And like I said, I was always amazed as a young person, you know, why, why are people from very far away, you know, in the case of my parents, United States or this NGO, I, I snagged a job at when I was 13 from Belgium. What, what are they doing here? You know, in Northern Mali. I mean, so it's amazing that people that far away would come. There were large scale food security issues going on. So there were two C-130s landing at the airport in the town I lived in, which is, by the way, was Timbuktu, if you can believe that. Cool. And every day during the height of the drought back then, you know, just dropping off food. So, you know, I would watch those planes land and go. And I just remember thinking, that's amazing, you know, that people are either, you know, I didn't have, didn't know what words to use back then, but, you know, the way it appeared to me was compassionate enough or, you know, had oriented, you know, other people oriented enough feeling to be doing this for these people that I grew up around, you know, my friends, Malians at that point in time. And then secondly, I also saw the, you know, close hand, the failure <laughs> of some of those exact same programs. So, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men or, you know, our best intentions sometimes go wrong. And of course, you know, now we look back at those at the 70s, 80s, particularly sort of some of the earliest large scale INGO work 
in Africa and know that a lot of it, in terms of sustainability anyway, failed. You know, so activism, I grew up also thinking the second point is that activism can't be everything. You know, it's not just raising money and showing up. There must be something that we've missed along the way in terms of how to develop a long-term sustainable programming in, quite frankly, very difficult places to work. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the shorthand <laughs> on me and growing up and then how I got involved with Water for Good. And then I can talk uh, just about water, for, you know, what Water for Good does. But I was working, I mean, my career has basically been a pretty long string of working with Africa-focused ventures of a variety of sorts. RichardKlopp.com is my CV. So if you want to see all those details, you know, some of the highlights anyway. So it's been a really interesting career working largely in management, executive management and development fundraising with startups, you know, people that are starting things up in Africa or turnarounds. So, you know, I think what was going on was for some reason, North Americans during my lifetime sort of discovered Africa, right? When I was a little kid and we'd come back to the U.S., nobody really you know, knew where this continent was. <laughs> you know, Africa's a country, this type of stuff. But, hey, in the 80s, 90s, and even now, you know, there's been explosive growth in the nonprofit sector, as you know, with a focus on African countries particularly. And, you know, that's just we are people of our times. And I realize now that I was just kind of riding a wave because a lot of people starting things up and a lot of people are having issues. So I got involved with a startup called H2O Africa which became what's now known as Mm water.org. It was really an organization out of Kansas city called water partners led by Gary white and a phenomenal organization. And then the combination of H2 Africa, which was Matt Damon's water charity. Long story short, I was charged with trying to find sort of like what you were saying at the beginning, looking for sustainable investments in water in Africa and I had to learn a lot and took about a year to try to research what was going on. That's how we ran into Water Partners, which became Water.org, which is a phenomenal organization. But all that to say is I realized that sustainability you know, was a really big problem. And I ran across this organization at that time called ICDI, Integrated Community Development International, now called Water for Good. And it was the only one I had found that had a maintenance program. Mm-hmm. When I would ask water charities, so what do you do for sustainability? They would talk to me about village committees and you know local repaired people that they would leave leave tools with and train. I, mean, I grew up in an African village. I knew that was not going to solve the problem long term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this was the only charity I found, quite frankly, back then. You know, this is 2007, 2008, 2009 in there. And that had a, you know, they were focused on repair and maintenance or post-installation services. So it wasn't just about provision for water for good. Everybody was doing some form of provision. You know, here's water, whatever the technology may be. Very few people have worked on what happens after that initial provision. In other words, the sustainability piece. And I ran across these guys. Again, we were funding them for doing wells. And I'm like, hey, about that maintenance program, can you tell me more about it? Little did I know I'd end up working for the joint. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, but it was that initial, you know, that's what hooked me because that's not as uncommon now as it was back then. But Water for Good was one of the first ones in that space that I knew of anyway. So I love it. And so, yeah, you really experienced firsthand of seeing what it's like of what works and what doesn't work in these remote African villages. And it's apparent that there are times where people go in with the best intentions and there's positives of going and bringing help, but 
as you know, long-term sustainability, maintenance, and operations is one of the most important things for a successful project. And if anything, it's just like a car. I mean, if you're not doing proactive maintenance, it's going to break over time. And if you don't have the human capital and the financial capital and physical capital, those things are eventually going to fail. And I can see that through the work you've done that that's not the case for Water for Good. And that drew you with their water maintenance program, which is so inspiring. So to kind of build on that, I'd love to kind of know what are these water projects that are installed and maybe also to kind of add on, how did Central African Republic become the focus for these water projects that you are installing? Yeah. So our, uh, our founder's name is Jim Hawking. He was a missionary in Central African Republic. So we grew up there. Actually, his son, Jay Hawking, is our country director now. So uh, involved with managing operations in the country. And it's interesting because what I think inspires Water for Good or motivates us is we have people who have grown up on the continent. So have, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of a visceral knowledge of how things go down in, in communities. I mean, we grew up in these communities. That's not everything. I'm not even sure how to quantify that. But I know for Water for Good, it's, it's a dimension of what motivates us. And we could talk about, you know, what that means a bit later. But Jim started this. And it had an interesting start. I mean, the reason we work in Central African Republic, quite frankly, is because that's where Jim grew up and he knew a guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All good stories start with, you know, I knew Knowing a guy. A guy. <laughs> so Jim, Jim knew a guy, a Swedish man who had actually built a successful water drilling and with some repair services company called Sanga Forage. So this was a private sector company at the very beginning. So it's interesting because in the world of water charities now, or just charity in general, there's a big move towards market-based approaches. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about Water for Good is we were a market-based approach from the very beginning. Like we, Jim inherited. So basically there was a, you know, the quote unquote war or conflict that happened in the country back in 2003, 2004. This gentleman, a friend of Jim's, uh, that had also been in the country for many years, said, hey, I'm going to, I mean, this is shorthand, but basically I'll give you all this if you will turn it into a nonprofit, an NGO, and keep working in this country. So all of those re- assets were donated to Jim, and he started uh, what was called ICDI, Integrated Community Development International, or now rebranded as Water for Good. So we inherited, uh, you know, drilling equipment, staff, garages, you know, et cetera, right? So uh, we hit the ground running in 04 when the, when the organization started, when Jim started it. Mm-hmm. So it's always been a water drilling and repair service company. So one of the more important things about that is in the world of water charities, you know, there are two kinds. That's, again, shorthand. It's a little more complicated with that. But essentially, you got water charities that fundraise. And, you know, you would probably know some of those entities. And then they essentially hand that funding off or work with or contract out with organizations like Water for Good, which is an implementer. Mm-hmm. So you got fundraising organizations, you got implementation organizations, or an implementer. And when you implement, you know, you don't really want to work in 15 different countries, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because if you're trying to build out a successful model and you're an implementer, that means you view water infrastructurally. It's not just raising money and spending it, you know, and it's not just technology. It's failing fast. Because nobody, there is no good solution for rural water, sustainable rural water infrastructure in Africa. There are semblances of, you know, rural water infrastructure that's working. So we have to keep doing this, studying it and learning, and then, you know, 
working together with government, working together with the nonprofit sector, and then working together with organizations like ours, which are really somewhat of a hybrid. I mean, we're a 501c3 in the U.S., but in Central African Republic, we're very focused on private sector capacity mm -hmm. building. In our view, you know, you just look around at the globe and ask yourself, where does rural water work? And everywhere it works, you'll find some semblance of a public-private partnership. Mm -hmm. You know, the government's involved and the private sector is involved. In Central African Republic, there are, you know, NGOs focus on building a government capacity, which they should. <laughs> you know, the UN agencies, a lot of the INGOs are focused on building government capacity. And we just noticed a gap. And the reason we noticed that gap is because of how we started. You know, mm -hmm. we, we started in that gap where people aren't, weren't really working on private sector market-based approaches back then. Again, that's changed and it's changing, which is great. So you kind of see why, how that came together for, for Water for Good. It was really looking at what we were and deciding to double down on it. I love it. Taking from your history and using that to direct where you're going. And, yeah. and what I like you said is, is that there truly is no best one-size-fits-all solution for all of Africa. And as you know, from Niger to South Africa to Mali to yeah. Nigeria, there's so many differences, and even within country. But yeah. in particular, the Central African Republic, what have you learned that is the best solution for Central African Republic? And what are these water solutions? And you mentioned capacity building that Water for Good does. Can you touch on that? Yeah. So Central African Republic is called a fragile state, right? So doing market-based approaches or focusing on building the private sector component of a reliable water system for a country is half crazy. Again, I don't think we ever would have tried to do it <laughs> if we hadn't have inherited it. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you'll notice in fragile states, development agencies exit. Mm -hmm. You know, people do emergency humanitarian relief in these countries. They don't do much development, and for all the obvious reasons. But that was not our. We didn't have that option, and we ended up basically sort of providing a proof of concept. We think, at least to ourselves, uh, the country, if not perhaps even beyond that country for other fragile states, that you can do water-based development in countries that are, you know, very broken countries for a variety of reasons in CAR, like CAR. So, you know, CAR is a landlocked country, you know, hard to work in, not just because of the civil conflict and its definitions of fragile state. By the way, fragile state, you know, is basically a developing country characterized by weak state capacity or weak state legitimacy, which really just means that the citizens are vulnerable to all sorts of shocks. And organizations like the World Bank and, and other UN agencies study those shocks and sort of provide a definition of what is fragile, which usually means, at least for World Bank, you know, that it's eligible for aid assistance. They've had UN peacekeeping missions involved. I think it's like for three years or five years, something like that. And then they have these governance scores. So very low governance, which, you know, is a nice way of talking about corruption and broken systems. But, you know, for Water for Good, we, in that context, sourced private American capital, you know, as the official aid flows turn towards emergency. Emergency meaning, you know, you have a lot of IDPs in the country, internally displaced peoples, and all of the issues that work create. And NGOs, thankfully, came in or were there to focus on that, but that was not, has never been our mandate. Our mandate is building rural water infrastructure. So we just stuck with it sort of out of necessity and private American capital. So sourcing funding from, you know, <laughs> kids doing lemonade stands and giving us 15 bucks to 
to large, you know, to wealthier people donating, you know, over a million dollars to this organization. But it was all for the same purpose, which is, you know, somebody's got to be working on building infrastructure in countries like CAR. And it makes sense that Water for Good would do that since that's what we were and are. And we, you know, successfully continued to drill wells. We spun off a locally owned and operated well drilling operation you know, during the crisis, the last crisis was 2013, 2014, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then we work with all, you know, we work with all central African staff in the country. So we don't have to evacuate expat staff. We can just keep right on working because the, everybody on the operational side, the delivery side in country are central African. This is their country. This is where they live. And we, as their colleagues, you know, do supporting functions that are easier to do outside of the country, like raising private American capital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, but, you know, again, tr- we try to position that capital more as startup, you know, to create things like Masla African Drilling, the local drilling company. And eventually we imagine that these repair and maintenance teams that now function inside of our NGO still would spin off as locally owned and operated entities in partnership with the government. You know, and that's really just driven by what I said earlier, public-private partnerships. You know, people don't really debate that that's that's not the right structure. Mm -hmm. It's just how do you get this done in a very broken country. Love it. And that's what we're trying to find out. So, you know, we're not – I don't want to communicate that we – you know, we're not one of these organizations, probably because we're implementers that like to promote ourselves as we know what to do. (laughs) The way we talk about it is we landed in a very, very interesting nexus where, you know, this is exactly what you should do with an American 501c3 is take the risk to try to build reliable rural water structures in countries like CAR. Because if, you know, for one reason, and I don't know if you've seen these stats, you know, 80% of the world's extremely poor by 2030 will live in fragile states. Right now, the stat is 72%. So 72%, like if you want to solve extreme poverty, which is everybody talks about, You'll have to work in fragile states. Mm-hmm. You don't have a choice. Seventy percent of the world's extreme poor right now are in fragile states. Richard Stearns, uh, who was the head of uh, World Vision, uh, I like the way he said it: is extreme poverty is retreating into fragile states, and you can see why. Water for good. You know, we used to kind of be unknown. We were just there doing our thing, building our infrastructure, trying to see what worked, trying to fix what didn't, and move forward. So you can see why now there's there's interest because with the sustainable development goals, uh, there's large scale recognition that we have to come back around these fragile states and solve developmental problems. We can't exit. We have to stay in. And Waterford is just one of the organizations that stayed in. Mm-hmm. I love it. You guys are a piece of the puzzle, not trying to be anything you're not. And again, yeah. bringing it back to the the maintenance water program and how yeah. that's one enabling the long term sustainability. Two, I really like that that is a component of providing jobs for people, but really then bringing it back to the capacity building and then the the impact on the community. I'd love to kind of hear your insight on what's been the response from the ability to now have access to safe water and have the, I guess, even the jobs that are associated with the maintenance and then maybe any stories from jobs or economic opportunities that have arisen from people now having access to a water source that didn't exist before. Yeah, great question. I wish uh, I wish we were in CAR and uh, we could go sit with one of these communities and you could ask them directly because mm-hmm. that's, that's the real answer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just... And part of managing this thing, quite frankly. But, you know, I get, 
I was just in CAR for three weeks back in October, and I get that opportunity to sit with people. I spend all time when I'm in country with our, you know, with these maintenance crews who I call my water heroes because these are the people who are out on circuit riding operations. So they maintain and repair pumps for, you know, somewhere between 200, 250 pumps in their circuit. And they're constantly in and out of these communities. So you really get a sense of what this means to community when you drive into a community with one of these Central African repair crews. <laughs> they know everybody. Everybody knows them. They're water heroes to the local people because, you know, the pump broke and they had to go without clean water again. So they have to go back to their original sources. And then here comes the repair man, similar to when, you know, my pipes break <laughs> here in my house and the repair guy shows up. I mean, we're so, you know, this just happened actually a couple months ago, mm -hmm. you know, living a day without water is, you know, puts us in a fetal position and you, you know, when, as we know all across the world, people go for much longer times than that. So, you know, just seeing the, the happiness on people's faces because they know, especially for women and girls, they're not going to have to do the walk, which takes up so much of their time and has drastic negative effects on their the quality of their lives, which then, you know, has ripple effects in communities, as we know. Hmm. But also seeing the participation. So even the fact that, it you know, people take care of the well, you know, they keep it clean. The, the village committee has responsibilities and the water repair crew, you know, interacts with the community on those issues as well. And I love, you'll notice if you look at water for good photography, you'll often see everybody helping actually pull the pump. <laughs> so the Zalnier pumps that we like to install, very expensive pumps, but high quality. And when your focus is sustainability, you know, you want to use the highest quality pump you can put on. And it has a very long PVC pipe that people have to pull out. So the whole community, like, you know, it looks like tug of war. If you don't know what you're seeing, mm -hmm. they pull this thing out, you know, and, you know, they, they participate in the repair, the management of the resource of the utility, the water utility, and they, they participate in the repair of it. They pay fees, right, for the service. So uh, when you drive into a community, the repair guys look at the, they bring out a book, where they, you know, that shows the in and outs of that cash account that they keep in the community most often. And they use the money for a variety of things, you know, that go, you know, under the broader heading of their own community development. And then they pay a, a small percentage of that to the Water for Good crew to pay for the service, basically. Yeah, so that, you know, that's a bundle of, of things that you see going on every time you drive into one of these communities with the repair crew. The well drilling it, you know, it's a different experience. I call it an episodic intervention. So, you know, you're in and out of a community. You may never see these people again, right? Which is why we thought to focus on sustainability, let's spin off the drilling operation into a locally owned entity. For one thing, Central African Republic didn't have a locally owned entity in drilling. So that means foreign companies are in CAR, which means aid money goes in for water. And that aid money goes out of the country to, you know, the Chinese or South Africa or whoever, you know, drillers are in the country. Nothing inherently wrong with that. It's just large multinational corporations that do drilling. And, you know, good thing they're there when nobody else is there. But we started the Central African company to capture that money into the country because all of his staff are Central African. Mm -hmm. And the money doesn't leave the borders. <laughs> you know, it's kind of another issue going on in the, in the country that they... Uh, called tenderpreneurism. We don't have time to talk about that. But the point is, is that intervention is episodic. No matter how you see it, it's in and out of the community. 
So community development doesn't really happen there mm-hmm. uh, where you can develop out, you can work on, you know, finding out what a community wants to do to develop their community. When you have an intervention that moves you in and out year after year, year after year, you have, you know, you can build the kind of relationships with a community to find out what they want to do. Right. Because for Water for Good, this has nothing to do with what we want to do. It has everything to do with what these people who have amazing resilience and capacity want to do. And then, you know, we'll bring some resources in that, you know, because of the state of their country, they don't have access to right now. But we have no interest in, you know, we're, we don't we don't view Africa as a problem that, you know, our, our money and technology is going to solve. <laughs> you know, we view these communities as people who want to develop. There's no doubt about that. They have ideas. Water gets us connected, and water is a primary issue. And water has an economic, private sector, market-based reality to it. And then, you know, the sky's the limit. Some of the communities that we work in will take money from resale of water and, you know, get pharmaceutical products that their community needs in. Some have paid teachers because the state doesn't have the capacity to provide quality teachers. Some have federated. We went into one area of the country only to find out that eight of these com- or eight or ten of these uh, water committees had decided to create a super committee, open a bank account in the capital city. <laughs> We're like, cool, man. I mean, that's amazing. We don't have great knowledge on how this goes down because we right now are working in. Let me see. This year, 2018, we worked in I think 1,700 communities, so 1,700 village pumps under maintenance. The last stat I had was about 1,200, so it's grown quite a bit in 2018 because we are focused on a full country coverage plan that we could talk about as well. So we got a lot lot better optics on uh, what was going on with uh, repair and maintenance services and found out that we were a lot more was going on than we even had the ability to track initially. So, Well, really well said on so many fronts, and, and I have a lot of questions. I want to keep it somewhat focused, but I did yeah. like your comment on the notion of, again, whether the well's broken or your pipe's broken, and that perspective of just trying to live a day without water. And I think that's something that kids in America, or a lot of people have no context on, because granted, we turn on the sink and there's water, and it's so convenient. But when you can have that perspective, I think that that sort of gives you that aha moment that, all right, well... That's crazy to think that someone else around the world doesn't have that. What can I do to get involved? And I've seen some of the different partnerships that you guys have around the country Uh and corporations. And I'd like to just briefly, if you have any insight on how different corporations or individuals can get involved with Water for Good. Because there's a lot of people who want to do good, but maybe don't know how to do good. And they either maybe have their time or they have financial resources. But what would you say to someone that had a passion for wanting to help Central African Republic and wanting to get involved to help your organization. Yeah. Well, thanks for that opportunity too. We expressed some of this on our website. You know, people can go to waterforgood.org and hit the donate button and it takes you to a page that lists some opportunities. One of them that I think is a good entry point, especially for corporate partners is what we call co-funds. So because of the structure of water funding, whether that's overseas development assistance or even private funders, they usually don't cover all cost. You know, they like to cover certain, you know, expenses and other expenses they, that, you know, they consider to be administrative or overheads for a variety of reasons they don't cover. So we do these co-funds. So the average cost of a well in Central Republic Republican and the areas we work in, and this is extremely high, but is, you know, on average about $18,000. 
that's for deep borehole, you know, but, uh, so as an example ongoing, you'll notice if you go to the donate page that we raised $3,000 in co-funds and we match it with $15,000 from organizations that, you know, fund the core implementation. So it, it's basically, I mean, you know, $18,000, $18,000 for a well is steep. So that's a, that's a high entry point as compared to 3000, which uh, we have a lot of groups that band together. You know, we have like, you know, grade school kids that'll band together and raise money like that as mm-hmm. well as small companies. And we really like working with small to medium sized companies because we can have a yeah, have a dynamic relationship for a company that's growing just like us yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a charity. And so co-funds is a great way to get involved because it's $3,000 price point. Love and then you have a physical, you know, you're connected to a community and an intervention, a well that can be proven. It's either there or not. It's either functional or not. And then people can get involved with funding the maintenance crews. That's the ongoing sustainability part. And people can, you know, donate at a variety of different levels there. That's great. Uh, and, yeah. I'll, and I'll make that aware and provide the links on that. And to cool. bring it back to two last points that are somewhat more focused on some of the operational aspects is looking at Water for Good. I'd love for you to just give me some insight on what in its early 2019, what do you see as the biggest challenges that Water for Good faces? And what do you see as the the biggest opportunities moving forward here in the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah. So, you know, often challenges and opportunities are the flip side of the same coin, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, one of the biggest challenges is just, uh, so when you make a claim like we have, we call it swap internally. So a sustainable water access program, we decided, you know, our success in our own minds <laughs> has happened in phases. Number one was like a proof of concept, you know, so we worked for about a dozen years doing sustainability, market-based type sustainability approaches in rural water, you know, services in that fragile state, which again, at that point in time, nobody was doing. And we successfully did it. So now we know it's possible. What we're in now is sort of phase two, where, you know, if you're building an infrastructural model, meaning full rural water coverage for this country, Central African Republic, you got to double down, you got to go all in in one of the provinces to prove, you know, to then prove out the scale. So we're into scaling right now. We're, gonna, we're scaling to the first full provincial water coverage. Well, here's the biggest problem. you got to know how many people are in that part of the country, right, <laughs> to be able to make you know, reliable claims to ourselves and to our donors to, you know, on targets, right, like how many people live here. Well, these are countries that don't have reliable information on that. So this past year, we spent the money and the time with an amazing person, <laughs> Isabella, who is actually Polish, but lived in the country, speaks the local language, and ran a baseline study for the whole year just to find out who was living in this country and who is accessible. You know, can you get a drill rig in to this community? And if not, what are the other technologies that would be viable if we're going to do rural water coverage? So one of the biggest challenges, which you, know, you often don't even think about, is, it, and if you take a data-based approach to things like we do, you have to do some base-level work to be reliable in your own approaches as well as what you say to people. Now, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, I don't want to discredit anyone, but as you know, a lot of people just don't, they're just not that careful about what they say because they figure nobody's going to know. But when you're an implementer, you have to know, (laughs) know, we got to know what to order. We got to know what the costs are. So anyway, the challenge is spending the kind of time on the logistics of doing full water coverage 
in a very problematic, hard-to-be-in country with civil conflict and you know, rebel groups blocking roads so you, you can't get in to even count the population. And counting the population is sitting in communities with the village chief, asking questions and writing them down on notebooks, and then coming back to re-verify. So that, that's one of the biggest challenges. Of course, is the opportunity. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, the whole reason we're doing this is because, I mean, how cool is it that, I mean, for the government alone, I mean, we'll have the best information on the planet on a fragile state. You know, as we move the system from province to province, we work in nine. So basically roughly half of the province of the country, uh, we provide our services, but we're going to finish the job in one province as we continue to work in those nine. And what we learn over the next few years, I mean, we've set a, you know, you have to set a, you've got to draw a line in the sand to target anything. And we decided that we're going to try to finish the job in this part of the country called Mambere Kedai by 2020. Again, that's the tentative first line of the sand. We just found out because of this year-long baseline study how many people live in the province. So, but the important part of it is no matter when this is finished, it will get done. We're, we're getting close. <laughs> and then that same system can be moved from province to province to province. And you can logistically and rationally show, and you can even cost out what forward water coverage for Central African Republic will, will cost, the time it will take, Obviously, as security permits, because some of these provinces are inaccessible because of violence. So. Fantastic. Well, Richard, it's really been a pleasure getting some insight in Water for Good. I have about 15 more questions I want to ask you about, maybe talk <laughs> at a later that. date. No, it's, <laughs> My it's, answers it's, are long. <laughs> no, there is, you're spitting fire here, and, and I really appreciate it, and so are our audience. And we're really excited to continue to raise awareness and, and build this partnership with you guys, because we know Central African Republic is not an easy place to work, and, and maybe a lot of people would shy away from it, but we commend you for the work you've done, and we're really excited to see your progress and, and help be part of the awareness and fundraising part of it. Granted, you guys are the true implementers and love your commitment to service and support and implementation, and we wouldn't be able to do that without you, so thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing and helping us get the word out on CAR is a really important thing. And I just have to say, too, obviously, I the kudos go to the amazing Central Africans that we work with in that country. We get the privilege to work with. And then my colleagues who live outside of the country are just a phenomenal group of, of world changers. So that's how it gets done. And I just try to keep up. So it's all about to talk about what this amazing group of people are doing in this actually wonderful country, despite the brokenness, you know, you, you need to go meet these people, man. They are some of the coolest people I've ever been around. I hope to. Yeah. Media media sometimes can paint the story, but I'm sure as you go and you really get grassroots, Uh, it's a powerful, powerful group of people. And, and if people wanted to learn more, you, you mentioned earlier, but what's the best way to get in contact with water for good? to see if people want to donate or get involved or, or collaborate in some capacity. Yeah, info at waterforgood.org for any kind of general question, and that'll get answered immediately and sorted out. Or people can contact me directly at rklop, R-K-L-O-P-P, at waterforgood.org. Awesome. R-K-L-O-P-P at waterforgood.org. Yeah, happy to answer any question or, or direct people to uh, the part of the organization that it would be better to answer their questions or interact with them. Awesome, Richard. Well, thank you for your time today. It was a pleasure. No, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. I got to order a band now, don't I? Of course. <laughs> of course. Good answer. Good answer.